All right, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another year of grace. We thank you for the privilege of walking with you in your word. We pray that you'd open our ears and open our minds as we listen to your word. And take us to dark Gethsemane and as we follow you in your passion and spirit, work in our hearts and move us through what we read and study. Bless our discussions tonight. Amen. Okay, we are finishing John 17. And I'm thinking we got up to verse 20? Yes. Somebody, somebody keep track of these things? Yes. Okay. 11.30. Okay. All right. It's a bad thing about teaching this twice, is that one, one group... Is the other group still behind? They're, they're behind, but they're catching up. I shouldn't, I shouldn't blame them. It's like, I'm behind with them, and I'm catching up with them. Sometimes it depends on, do I think of a certain story that I didn't think of Monday night? And then uh, that sets us back a little bit. Okay, uh, chapter 17 is, the whole chapter is Jesus' high priestly prayer. First he prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples. And then verse 20 Jesus prays for those who will believe through their message. So who's he talking about? Us. us. The church of all time, but also us. Uh, and verse 20, Jesus says, I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their message. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they become completely one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Uh, we'll just stop it with that paragraph there. Uh, what's the first thing that he asks for? In verse 20, it's, it's an introduction. I'm, I'm praying for those who will believe through their message. And then... The petition is verse 21. The thing he's asking for is verse 21. May they all be one. Yeah, unity. Um, and what kind of unity? May they all be one. Father and Son. Yeah, what I have written down is unity like the Trinity. Uh, one in purpose, one in love, one in everything. Uh, and then uh, verse 22, unity for the purpose of sharing in his glory. Now we remember how Jesus defines glory in a different way than the world around us does. Remember how Jesus defined glory in a different way.
rest of the world defines glory as splendor, wealth, abundance. How does Jesus define glory? Humility, serving, suffering, expressing his love through suffering. Uh, so when Jesus talks about glory here, we have to remember what, how did he define glory for himself? Uh, what did he mean when he said, I'm Father, I am here to glorify your name, to display love through suffering? Uh, this part, this whole, actually, this whole paragraph, uh, where Jesus prays for unity, and then you've got the the unity like the Trinity. May they be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. There is a doctrinal term for this. And it's called the mystic union. And uh, the term mystic. Oh, maybe you think of Indian or, or Middle Eastern mystic type religions. Uh, the, the term mystic uh, is used to talk about, uh, uh, in Christianity, mysticism is used to talk about uh, unity with God. Uh, Sometimes to the point where you want to be like a drop and God is the ocean. And you just want to lose yourself in God. That's one way that mysticism has been explained. Uh, there's good mysticism and bad mysticism. Uh, the bad mysticism... Uh, do you remember, did I ever talk about the word schwärmerei? I'm, I'm pretty sure I did. A German word. Uh, good German word, you got to have a letter with dots over it. Uh, the word schwärmerei, it's related related to the words, English word swarm. Think of a swarm of bees with the bees going in every which way, every imaginable direction. That's what the German word schwärmerei means. Uh, Luther used the term and often used it to talk about people who seek some kind of revelation from God apart from Scripture. And so if, if mysticism is, is, has some goal other than seeking God through Scripture, then what are you trying to be one with? And uh, mystics within Christianity and outside of Christianity uh, have tried to have union with God or union with the infinite through uh, fasting, self-punishment, uh, austere lifestyle, meditation, or sometimes waiting for some special revelation from God. Are any of those things the key to union with God? 
meditation, if it's meditation on the word, but extreme self-denial, you just make yourself miserable. Uh, uh, and so, shwerai, that's seeking revelation from God apart from the means of grace. It gets you nowhere. Or it gets you a lot of bad places, we should say that. Good mysticism, and this is, we rarely call it mysticism. Uh, but good mysticism is when we have a true union with God from hearing his word. Uh, we have a true union with God sacramentally. When we remember our baptism, what does our baptism mean? Drowning of the old Adam, and then the new person comes up, new person arises, just as Jesus died and rose again. Uh, also, uh, we're baptized in God's name. Now, there's two ways that that phrase can be understood, and uh, Jesus' intention is probably both. Uh, the pastor says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Dale, you used to be power of attorney for Mr. Gogert, right? And you had to do a lot of things in his name. And legally, it was as if he did it himself. But you were doing these things in his name. So when the pastor says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, who's really doing the baptizing? God, God himself. Mm -hmm. Another way that phrase has been understood, and uh, it's probably rightly so too, is we are also baptized into God's name. Uh, when I hand a quiz to my catechism class, and there's a line on the top of the paper, and if the kids are sharp, they write their name on that line. What does that mean? They put their name on a piece of paper, what does it mean? It's theirs. It's theirs. We're baptized into God's name. God puts his name on us. What does that mean? We're his. Um, remember in Toy Story? Any of your grandkids watch Toy Story? And uh, one of the things they made a big deal about was that name they had Andy's name written on the bottom of their shoe. What does it mean that God's name is on you. You belong to him. Uh, it means ownership. And so that's, we remember, uh, remember our baptism every day and the drowning of the old Adam, but also we remember the value that it gives us. You're having a rotten day. Are you still a child of God? What tells you that? What tells you that you're a child of God? Even when you're having a rotten day. How do you know you're a child of God? God has granted you as a child of God. Okay. Through baptism. Okay. We're baptized into his name. And then Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells, the Bible me, tells so. me so. Uh, there's something outside of you that gives you that message. That is your unity with God. That's where that comes from.
if you feel like a child of God only when you're having a good day, uh-oh. Because there's a lot of bad days out there. Uh, when we're talking about our unity with God, and the message of the gospel all, all across the board, uh, the message of the gospel, it is an, an objective truth. That means something that's true regardless of what you think. Of course, you should believe it, uh, and to various degrees we struggle with doubt, but uh, the objective truth is you're baptized into God's name. God has put his name on Baptism is more something that God does rather than something we do to show our devotion to God. So even on your worst day, you can do what Martin Luther did, and he'd sit and say, surely I am baptized. Uh, that's the good mysticism. Or the Lord's Supper. Are you forgiven? Yes. Yeah, how do you know? Well, the Bible tells me so, and the okay. pastor says, in the name of, I uh -huh. do this by the command. Okay. And could you okay. taste forgiveness last Sunday? No. You couldn't taste forgiveness. Well, I, well you do. You're, yeah. You have the, the bread and the wine, yeah. and, and we know that that's... And that's what forgiveness tastes like, because Jesus has connected himself to that. To that and has connected forgiveness to that. So that if, if, our, if our skulls are so thick that we forget that we're forgiven, here's a sensory overload thing so you can taste forgiveness and see it. Uh, and that's our union with, that's why it's called communion. It's the union of God with his people, I and them and you and me. Uh, it's the union of body and blood with bread and wine. Uh, but that it's, it's an outside thing that declares forgiveness to you. I've talked about Dr. Laura before, haven't I? used to listen to her on the radio driving around in the car and just about every day somebody would call up and say, Dr. Laura, I just can't forgive myself. Oh. Uh, and people struggle with guilt. And what's the solution when you feel like calling Dr. Laura and saying, I feel like I just can't forgive myself. What's the solution for that? The Bible, the Word. Yeah. The Bible tells me. Water in the Word tells me. Bread and wine and Christ's body and blood tell me that I'm forgiven. Even when I don't feel it. This is true. And so that's, that's God's union with you, with word and sacrament. Uh, then, our last part of the chapter, uh, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me so that where I where I am so that they may see my glory. The glory you gave me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Ooh, that takes us back to chapter 1, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word. And is this the glory that's achieved through suffering? 
this is a different kind of glory, isn't it? The glory I had before the world began. Uh, this is not the glory of love displayed through suffering. This is heavenly glory. I want them to see my glory, that heavenly glory. Uh, righteous Father, the world did not know you, but I knew you, and these men knew that you sent me. <coughs> I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so the love you have for me may be in them and I may be in them. Uh, verse 26, there's a passage much like it in John chapter 1. No one has seen God, but one God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God is known through the preaching of his word. I suppose the thought that sometimes you hear, I can go out and sit in the woods and be close to God. That can be the right kind of mysticism, it can also be the wrong kind. you're confusing closeness to God's creation with closeness to God. God makes himself known through the word. There is such a thing as natural knowledge of God that's very limited. Uh, as God reveals himself in his word, uh, that's where we have a better understanding of his glory. Okay, that is chapter 17, and that is the high priestly prayer. Now, we're getting into chapter 18, and I'd like you to keep this handy, but don't look at it all the time and follow along with it that closely because I got some of my questions here and I got the answers right with the questions. So I, I want to have kind of a dialogue here. Um, yeah. Before we start this, yeah. Jesus said only the Father knows when the last day is. Yeah. So Jesus doesn't know? Well, that's a very that's actually from, uh, that was from the, the gospel this Sunday, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And that is one of the great mysteries of Christian doctrine. Okay. And one of the great mysteries of, uh, of the Bible. And the best explanation I can give is that, uh, or one of the explanations that I've heard of that is, uh, Remember, uh, remember the steps, uh, and uh, talking about Jesus in his state of humiliation. Human. Remember what that meant? Human. His human side. His human side, but also kind of keeping a lid on the divine side. Okay, yeah. he could have. He could have. If he was going to, from Jerusalem to Galilee, he could have just zapped himself there, Star Trek style, if he wanted. Mm -hmm. He does that after his resurrection, uh, but instead he walked so he could walk with his disciples. He humbled himself. The steps of the apostle, uh, the lines of the Apostles' Creed, put on steps um, that expresses. As you get farther and farther, closer and closer to Good Friday, Jesus is using his divine power or displaying his divine power less and less and less and less until finally crucified, died, and was buried. Somebody else has to pick up his lifeless body and put it in the tomb. So that's his humiliation. One of the explanations for that is that 
in his humiliation, that was one of the things that he chose not to know. Now that's completely beyond us. How can you choose to forget something? Uh, if I say, don't think about the color green, all of a sudden, everything's green. Everything's green. Uh, how can Jesus choose not to know the day and the hour? Uh, well, that's a divine mystery and the best explanation I think I've heard is that it's part of his humiliation. That was something he gave up or chose not to know. Okay, we're getting into, uh, we've been in the Passion history because all of this has been from the upper room. Uh, and chapter 18, here we really get into the Passion history. Uh, from Gethsemane to Pilate's Palace to, the, to Calvary. And uh, from the section that we've been reading going into chapter 18, there's a, a modern scholarship problem. By modern, I don't, I mean uh, people who think they're modern and are, they think they're coming up with something new. Uh, some scholars see a problem uh, in this whole section because at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise up, let us go. And then he talks for three more chapters. So there's chapter 15, 16, 17. It's all Jesus talking. Uh, so after a certain, after he says, let not your heart be troubled and all of that, then he says, let us rise and go. And then he talks for three more chapters. And that some modern scholars uh, modern critics say that this is evidence of the Gospel of John being thrown together from many different sources put together at a much later time. Uh, and uh, the, there's a big problem I see a big problem with that idea. The, the Gospels, and especially this section of John, being thrown together or put in there at a later time. Uh, the first thing, the first problem I see with it is that there is uh, no copy of the Gospel of John that has chapters 15, 16, and 17 missing. If that discourse, those chapters of Jesus just talking, were inserted, you would imagine there must be an earlier version of John that doesn't have it. There is none. They, have, they haven't found a handwritten copy that's missing. That uh, They've ha found handwritten copies that are missing uh, the first part of John 11, but not Jesus' high priestly prayer, I am the vine, you are the branches, all of that. There's no, no early copies that are missing. The second problem with the idea, this is all put together by somebody at a later time, is that everything that Jesus says, and we can include uh, chapter 14 in there, 14, 15, 16, 17, is connected and so tightly woven with all the other themes throughout the Gospel of John. If it was inserted from something else, it would read differently. 
but through it we see uh, connections back to I and the Father are one, uh, I am the light of the world, uh, connections to people love darkness instead of light. So many themes that are repeated in there uh, that it has to be part of that. Um, in 2004, there was a movie of the Gospel of John, and I showed that, that one night a few weeks ago uh, with the rising of Lazarus. Uh, but anyway, back in 2004, the, the script writers were concerned because they were thinking like the modern scholars. These things are put together, and so they thought, what do we do with that? With Jesus saying, come now, let us leave, and then he talks for three more chapters, and then they get to Gethsemane. They thought, what do we do with this? And so then as, as they presented it in the movie, they're walking from the upper room, and Jesus is talking as they're going along. And then for chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, they stop at a grotto or a cave and Jesus prays his high priestly prayer and then he goes on to Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John. Uh, and so the movie people, movie, yeah, Hollywood never gets it right, do they? But here they did. Uh, uh, they made it work. And so, for us, it really does not you know, mean anything to us if there are scholars that say this or that. Uh, something that we know, something we should know from this class, too, is that everything in John, every verse in John is connected to every other verse in John, it seems. So many connections, so many repeated themes. We're getting out of uh, John 14 to 17 where it's called discourse chapters, <coughs> which means Jesus talking, talking for four chapters straight. Uh, and now we get into narrative again, uh, telling the story. And so take a look at chapter 18. After saying these things, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. He and his disciples went into it. Uh, take a look at the full color map at the bottom of the page for John 18. We think the upper room uh, would have been, well, you see where it says upper city in the lower left. Uh, just to the south of that upper city, it says Essene Quarter. Uh, I'm not sure where Essene Quarter came from, but it would have been in that part of the upper city. That would have been a residential area uh, at the time of Jesus. Uh, and so they went to uh, across the Kidron. Uh, if you look on the right side of Jerusalem, the east side of Jerusalem, you see a little stream and the Kidron Valley. Uh, right around Jerusalem. I haven't been there yet. Hope to go there in 2022. My trip's been rescheduled, so I hope to see it. But uh, if you if you look at pictures of that side of the city, there's 
It's kind of extreme landscape, ups and downs, hills and valleys, uh, winding paths because just of the lay of the land. Uh, so they, they crossed the Kidron and went to Gethsemane, and they've got a little green box there. Uh, Gethsemane was near the Mount of Olives, and the word Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for an oil press. So near the Mount of Olives, where there was an oil press. Uh, Garden just means a, a, a place with plants that was tended. It doesn't necessarily mean like it was a park, a place that was tended. Uh, Gethsemane is not named Gethsemane in the Gospel of John. It's just called a garden. So, moving on to verses 2 and 3. Now Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took the company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Uh, verse 2 says, Jesus often met there with his disciples. Uh, remember before we had Jesus in Jerusalem and he'd have some heated discussion with the Pharisees or the chief priests and then he would retreat to Galilee and then he would have trouble in his home synagogue or something and then he'd head back to Jerusalem and that he was constantly going back and forth. Uh, it seems that Jesus did this on a smaller scale during Holy Week. Uh, that he would retreat, probably retreat to Bethany at the end of each day. And so going near Gethsemane, every day that would be on the way to Bethany. So Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Uh, uh, verse 3, they brought lanterns, torches, and weapons. What do they expect? They're the ones with the lanterns, torches, and weapons, aren't they? Did the chief priests and the Pharisees have their own Roman guards, sort of? Or? Well, uh, they had. A, there was a temple guard, and it looks like they came with a company of soldiers. Could that be Romans? and some guards from the chief priests. So that sounds like the temple guards. So it sounds like both. Uh, but they brought lanterns, torches, and weapons. Uh, yeah, later we'll see one zealous disciple swinging a sword, but only one. Uh, so, before we go forward, remember, what's the question we always ask in the Gospel of John? Who is Jesus? Okay. And then when we get to the passion history part, we have to ask, who's really in charge. Okay. So, verse 4. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who are you looking for? 
Okay, first of all, who is Jesus? God. God, and maybe think of one of the omni words from catechism class. Remember those? Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. I think of omnipotent, but... That's all... We're going to have that one later. That's, that one's coming up in just a few seconds. But right now, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, omniscient, omniscience, omniscient, all-knowing, uh, went out and asked them, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus told them. Okay. Jesus says, I am he. He could have said, Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, you just missed him. I think he went that way. But he doesn't do that, does he? I am he. What, is, what does Jesus expect to do? He knows all that's going to happen to him. He knows he's going to go with him. He doesn't make up a story. Oh, you just missed him. I saw him go that way. And then he hightails it somewhere else. No, he says, I am he. And then... John gives us a parenthetical, even though it's not in parentheses in our Bibles. Judas the betrayer was standing there with them. Do you remember, oh, was that at the end of 13? That Jesus hands Judas the piece of bread and says, what you have to do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and everybody thinks, oh, he's going to get something for the feast. And now this is kind of the, the answer to that. Where did Judas go? He went to get this bunch with torches, lanterns, and weapons. Judas the betrayer was standing there And when Jesus told them, I am he, they backed away and fell to the ground. Now, Carol. Now, omnipotent. This is omnipotence. He knocks them over with a word. And as a little kid, in a Wednesday Latin service, hearing this read, I would always think, just step over them and get away. You just knocked them over with a word. And he doesn't. Instead, he asks again, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he. I think I've said this before. Why does Jesus ask questions? It's not because he doesn't know something. Why does Jesus ask questions? Make a point. Sometime to make a point. Some, make them think like when you ask the question yeah, of us. That he wants to hear you say it. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. He wants to hear them say it. Um, so Jesus says, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, 
let these men go. Uh, as Matthew reports it in Matthew 26, Matthew reports it, they deserted him. But Jesus, who's really in charge here? Jesus, Jesus always, is. God is always in charge. Yeah, and so Jesus is in charge. So, yeah, the disciples desert him, but Jesus let them go for their own safety, too. If you're looking for me, let these men got some action here. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Uh, How skilled a swordsman was Peter? Not very. Yeah. My son John was watching some of the Lord of the Rings movies. And when they're swinging their swords, they go for the vitals. They go for arms, they go for the neck. They never chop off an ear. Uh, it seems that Peter just pulled out his sword and started swinging and hit some guy in the ear. Well, and Peter was always action before thought. Yeah. yeah. Walking on water. Cool. I got to try that. Yeah. Uh, and does Jesus want that kind of defense? No. Uh, Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup my Father has given me? Does that remind you of something? And it's not in the Gospel of John. It's in Matthew. I think it's also in Luke. got one of our windows that picks that. John doesn't say anything about Jesus praying in Gethsemane, does he? But in the other Gospels, when they depict where Jesus is shown praying in Gethsemane, what does he pray? Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, but... Not as I will, as you will. And so now Jesus says to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup my Father has given me? So this is one of those places you got to put Matthew and John together. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. And now what does he say? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Does Jesus know the answer to his question? Yeah, I must drink the cup the Father has given me. Um, So was, was Jesus eager for a quick getaway in any of these things? No. And did he have many opportunities? Yeah. When he knocks him over with a word, when Peter swings his sword, all of these things. And Jesus goes forth anyway.
then going on to verse 12, the, then the company of the soldiers, their commander, and the Jewish guards arrested Jesus and bound him. And so I got to ask the question again, what did they expect? Why do you put handcuffs on somebody? Or in Jesus' case, probably tied his hands. Why do you do that? To restrain them, keep, yeah. them, keep them from keep them from running away. Running away, keep them, keep them from punching you in the face. And Jesus wasn't going to do all of that. And now put all put that in context with what we just read. Jesus knocked them over with a word, and now they tie him up. We're getting a little surreal here. Uh, it's getting kind of eerie. And imagine the soldiers, they're just doing what they're told to do but they're also experiencing all this. Getting knocked over with a word and then tie him up, take him to Annas, and just, it must have been very strange for those soldiers. So, then the company of soldiers, their commander, and the Jewish guards arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, because he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, it is better that one man die for the people. Um, Annas was the previous high priest, or the, the ex-high priest. Uh, and I looked it up. Uh, Annas was appointed high priest by Quirinius. That some, name sound familiar? Time of Christ's birth. Yeah, the, the governor of Syria at the time of Christ's birth. Uh, Annas was appointed high priest by Quirinius in the year 6 and served until 15. Uh, and he was the head of a family of priests. He had five sons and a son-in-law who followed him as high priest. Uh, there was a son, Eliezer, who served for a year, and then Caiaphas, was the son-in-law, and Caiaphas served from the years eight, the year 18 to the year 36. So that's before and then beyond either 30 or 33. I go with the year 30 because it's easier to remember. It could have been either 30 or 33. But anyway, uh, Caiaphas served from 18 to 36. And then uh, there were others that followed, but it, it seems that Annas is kind of like the godfather. He's the head of the family. And other, other of his sons and his son-in-law may be the high priest, but he's the head of the family. And uh, he has its set up that any of the other sons, they have to clear things with him first. So think of kind of like the Godfather. Everything has to go through him first. Uh, and we remember we talked about, uh, oh, this is way back in John chapter 2, and then it happens again probably Palm Sunday afternoon, Jesus cleansing the temple. 
And you remember why? Don't turn my father's house into a... Den of thieves. Yeah. You, this, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You turn it into a den of thieves. Or don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. Uh, a historian from around that time named Josephus said that the family of the high priest was running that operation of the buying and selling of cattle and the changing of money in the temple courts. So that's Annas and his family. Uh, and Probably the chief motivation behind Annas and his family trying to get rid of Jesus. He calls us a den of thieves. Uh, the Pharisees hated Jesus because they wanted to be the teachers of Israel. Uh, and so then the Pharisees and the priests got together. So we're getting close to 8 o'clock and we got another subject heading. So I think we're going to get into Peter's denial coming up. So I think that's a good place to break. In here it's a day. Detachment that they came with could have included up to 600 Romans. The plot was already in progress. Judas had gathered a company of soldiers, many as 600 men, okay. plus some of the temple guards. Okay. I always thought it was. Yeah. I would have to take a, a second look at uh, that to see what is the, the word for the, the company of soldiers. Uh, Roman soldiers, they, they usually had were called a century, a hundred, company yeah. of a hundred. Uh, and then a century was led by a centurion. Yeah. Okay. So a commander of a hundred. So I, I would have to double check and take a look at the exact word for the company of soldiers to see. It, it just struck me funny because I always had thought of it as a, a small amount of yeah. soldiers and, and, and guards. I will look into that okay. and get back to you. I did not look in the People's Bible as part of my preparation. Well, I just saw that there and it sort of we will take a look. Okay. Any questions on what we looked at tonight? Or any other good questions? All right. Hard to retain all of that. Well, that's why I give you a handout. Uh, that's why I give you a handout. So you can take a look at it later. But, uh, to me, the Bible's like the internet. You click on a word and it takes you so many places, uh, so many links, so many things are connected to so many other things, not just in the, the Gospel of John, but also in the, throughout the scriptures. And to me, that's a testimony that the Bible is a divine book and not like some scholars say, something thrown together. If it was thrown together, you would not have connections everywhere. There's connections everywhere. All right. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in these scriptures, we see your mighty power, your divine knowledge, and we see you setting all of that aside to go forward as the Lamb of God to bear our sin and to be our Savior. 
you showed us the glory of your love through suffering. Teach us humility, but also teach us how loved we are by you. That you gave up your life for us and you are pleased to call us your friends. So we call you our dearest friend, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.